Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 223 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. Damn, it's the first free episode of 2023, and it's episode 223. That's synchronicity right there. If I believed in some numerology shit, I'd be reading into that. (laughs) (laughs) That's I love I love that I love a good coincidence. I love good synchronicity. But we are back. TMK is back in the new year, uh, and we are ready to kick things off as as we've done the last couple last couple years uh, in our first like. You know, recording back after the New Year's, after the break, after we've all had a little bit of time to to rest and recharge and think about where what what happened and what comes next. You know, uh, it, it's time to project forward uh, into the new year a little bit. Importantly, not predict. We talked about this in the in the premium episode. Um, that was our actual first. A uh, new record of the new year that that just dropped, where we kind of looked back on 2022 to say, you know, what 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 spoofs and goofs, uh, crashes and canaries in the coal mine, you know, are are we learning from from 2022? Uh, a little post mortem, and you know, as a way to look forward, what's coming ahead. I say projections on 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 purpose because. You know, prediction is not the game that we're in. We are not uh, the we are not the professional futurist uh, and consultants who claim to have a crystal ball, claim to you know give you hot predictions of what's to come in the new year, where to place your bets, where to put your money, what corners to peek around, you know, to see what's coming next. Now nah, that that shit's a mugs game. That shit's bullshit. Uh, that shit don't work. But what we but what we can do and what we should do uh, is understand that what comes that that you know the future very often rhymes with the present and the past for a reason because that shit's all connected, right? Like this is you know historical materialism teaches us to look back uh, on 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 history, you know, and take a broader view. The you know the dialectical part of materialism teaches us that you know everything's a process, everything's interrelated. It's all it's relations all the way down, uh, and so the future is always going to be this product of the past and the present. Uh, we have said before, you know, especially when it comes down to things like Web three, which we talked a lot about, you know, in our postmortem episode. Uh, you know, despite all the claims of of mass disruption, of you know everything is different and nothing's ever going to be the same again. In reality, when you get down to brass tacks, you do a little you know digging around in the the operations of the system, who's behind it, what it, why, and what are they doing. It looks like a lot of old wine poured into new bottles by many of the same people, right? And so I think in our looking ahead uh, for for what what vibes, uh, what trends, what trajectories should we expect to see, um, you know, coming to, to fruition or building more momentum in, in the new year, uh, you know, I think there, I think we're going to see a lot of, a lot of similarities, um, and a lot of, but also at the same time, a lot of reactions to recent, uh, uh mechanics in the, in the markets, in the financial, um, uh, markets, in the tech markets. Um, so this episode, we're going to, we're going to talk, 
talk about that. Where do we see, what do we see happening with the markets? Where do we see the new kind of big trends in technological hype and investment and development and rollout? Um, you know, what are, what are we seeing as uh, the things that are going to dominate a lot of our time and energy uh, in 2023, much to much to our chagrin. Um, if you had told me like two years ago, even that I had, I would have spent as much time as I, as we did last year, um, thinking and reading and writing and talking about um, blockchain and cryptocurrency and shit, I would have not believed you. I, I spent a very long time uh, avoiding any of that shit. Uh, and last year brought um, a lot of things uh, made a, forced us to spend a lot of time and energy on a lot of things that don't deserve that time and energy. And, and uh, I suspect this year is going to be much the same. It is hard to anticipate what sort of things are going to like occupy a lot of the attention, what sort of spectacles and collapses and, you know, large black swan events are going to happen. But it is possible to kind of look at how things have developed in the last year and the past few years, look at the patterns and the systems and structures here to kind of get a sense of like what at the very least from last year will continue on forward, what is already announced and we can anticipate and also use this as a chance to also voice things that we're concerned about, right? Or things that we don't want to come to pass or things that we think there's a good chance of being able to stop them coming to pass, whether that's, um, you know, optim, you know, optimist optimism from activism. That's for example, blocking corporate uh, surveillance and trying to block corporate surveillance in public spaces and empowering the FTC to do so. Right. Uh, the kind of backlash people are growing to have against, or the growing backlash that people are having against, uh, AI art, or these, you know, these chat, these uh, chatbot generators, um, these, you know, attempts to deploy algorithmic overseers and and algorithmic intermediaries in more and more ways of life. I think, like you know, there's a lot of encouraging signs that are also things to look out for, as much as doom and gloom on the horizon, because it is grim. <laughs> there's a lot of stuff <laughs> that is grim on the horizon. Um, Specifically, because the political economy of most of how the t of the tech that we have is to uh, you know strap it onto something that is uh, primed for social control, for profit extraction, for speculation, for commodification, um, and things have been accelerating and probably will accelerate even in the face of a looming you know um, a looming uh, recession this year or next year. You know, if one even happens. Yeah. You know, the, the kind of the downturn in the markets right now, which we'll talk about, uh, is really already having a lot of effects in terms of financial activities in the tech sector. You know, the where venture capitalists are putting their money, um, what kind of investments are happening, uh, the, the rise or the projected rise in 2023 of mergers and acquisitions, uh, you know, especially as 
there's a lot of there's a lot of crashes in startup valuations. You know, startups that were already extremely overvalued. You know, had had valuations that did not match anything in the real economy uh, whatsoever. Were based solely on the fictitious capital of speculation, um, driven by you know the the logics of venture capital in large part uh you know and and those are starting to crash right like those valuations especially as you know and we'll we'll get a bit more into the mechanics of some of the changes in vc uh investment and startups looking for you know essentially bridge loans to keep them afloat um you know restructure you know kind of debt structures uh for startups who are unable to get you know prime sweet venture capital, especially at a higher valuation, which, you know, it's, it's essentially a death sentence for a startup if they go out looking to raise another round of, of capital and they have to do so at the same valuation as their previous round, let alone at a lower valuation. Um, no, no, no startup wants that and no VC wants to touch that, right? Because that's toxic. But we see a lot of that being the case, or we see a lot of, of venture capital with structure, as it's called. Again, we'll get into this, or we're or uh, into the kind of technical aspects of or of of this kind of financial dealings. Um, or we also see a lot of uh, of of debt debt uh, led uh, deals in this funding crunch. And so, what that means is that a lot of uh, a lot of startups, you know, are at once entering like lean mode, ultra lean mode. You know, it's the mass layoffs uh, and and hot and firings um, that have been the case uh, for a while. You know, uh, Crunchbase has a ongoing uh, layoff tracker. Uh, you know, where they're tracking every every all the layoffs happening at every technology company, large and small, um, and you know. It's 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 tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of layoffs happening sector wide, uh, and uh, that that's that really is telling a lot in terms of like where the money is at, where capital is at, how the you know there just isn't the capital there to sustain uh, these you know burn rates for hyper growth um, for startups, and then for larger, more established companies, uh, they you know the era you know to to quote. The Financial Times editorial board, uh, the end, a new era, the end of cheap money, right? So, you know, we're, we're looking at the end of cheap money, um, happening, you know, it, last year it was already happening with the rise of interest rates by the Fed Reserve, but also by European central banks. Um, the Australian, you know, financial sector has raised interest rates as well. Um, and, and so, with that cheap money gone, that means that, you know, the tech sector uh, is going to have to really look hard at, you know, take a long, hard look at itself and, and realize that it was really sustained off of, uh, off of dreams, <laughs> dreams and zero interest rates. That's what was sustaining it. And so with that being gone, you see this kind of plummeting of valuations, which means that, you know, Big companies that are still cash rich, you know, the Apples and Googles and Amazons, uh, you know, as well as 
big private equity firms, you know, they're, what they see is the potential for a buying spree uh, as, you know, startups that might have uh, a useful technology, might just be competitors in the market, might have some useful uh, people in terms of skills uh, and labor. And all of a sudden, uh, all that shit's real cheap. Uh, and so there's a lot of projections right now that next year uh, that mergers and acquisitions um, could really pick up the pace uh, it, it, you know in the midst of a uh, of a of a down of, of a stark downturn um, in the market at large and especially in the tech sector it's really interesting you know um Matt Stoller was talking in his um, newsletter big um, about how last year or, you know, 2022, we saw a big, well, we saw a fall merger activity, right? And that there were two reasons for this that makes sense when you zoom out because they're also coupled with Wall Street bonuses being down and private equity firms uh, also not being as involved in acquisitions, right? So you wrote that the first, you know, you know, the first is that this was 2022's fall in merger activities because 2021 had a surge. Um, but that, like you said, zero interest, uh, the zero interest rate policy for years and years ended. So no more free trillions of dollars. Um, well, you know, pulling back on the free trillions of dollars, making it easy to you know borrow money uh, to make these acquisitions. You know. Um, that's gone, right? And so now you go from a period in 2021 where the global value of uh, mergers was 5.7 trillion, and then you have it in 2022 dropping to 2.8 trillion a year, which is an eight-year long. So private equity loses its financing, um, and the collapse of some of the more obvious vaporware speculative instruments such as um, crypto you know, collapse, but also you start to see, you know, and this is something he didn't hit on, but you also see long-standing speculative enterprises that venture capitalists backed start to collapse as well, right? I'm thinking specifically of the at, the on-demand labor economy, right? The attempts to make uh, these ridiculous valuations for companies that, you know, were basically offering uh, regulatory arbitrage those those valuations started to crater because the valuations were part of this ridiculously complex scheme to convince investors to buy in to subsidize a pipe dream that would never happen but would create a stabilized version that was not as wildly profitable but permanent if they're able to change the law and so but the valuations and you know the massive haircuts came, um, and so and so you saw as firms started to collapse because they didn't have the scale. Uh, there were not as many. There's not as much interest in the mergers and acquisitions that dominated the previous iterations of the gig economy, right? Um, but the second thing he also points to, and this is just something to look for in 2023, is that you know there's the antitrust enforcement really started to pick up the, last year, 
right? The FTC and the antitrust division of the DOJ were started to bring antitrust um, cases and uh, and pursue investigations into mergers much more aggressively for the first time in many, many decades, right? This is because, we, you know, Lena Khan is the chair of the FTC. Uh, Jonathan Cantor um, is at the DOJ antitrust division. They have, have you know, a cadre and a circle of people around them uh, who, who followed them or who were mentors or who were connected with their mentors and other people in this sort of burgeoning, um, this burgeoning antitrust movement, the, the new Brandeis movement, right? And so the numbers here he quotes, I think, are also really interesting to look at. He says, the U.S. Justice Department and Federal Trade Commission, FTC, have attempted to thwart 22 mergers since Biden came into office in January 2021. That outnumbers the antitrust challenges during the first two years of former President Obama's first term in office and is twice as many as in Donald Trump's first two years, the Reuters analysis shows. While comprehensive data going back decades is unavailable, Joel Grossberg, antitrust lawyer in McDermott, Will, and Emory LLP said more mergers are entangled in U.S. antitrust uh, litigation now than at any point in his 25-year career. Right, and that this is extending not just to uh, mergers, but it also other areas of the law that just straight up haven't been enforced. Right, price discrimination, corporate barger, uh, bribery, um, you know, provisions which ban uh, directors of a board sitting. Uh, sitting directors sitting on the board of um, rival firms. Right, you know, like a lot. Of, we have a lot of rules that are on the book that have just straight up not been enforced for the past few decades and that uh, would make that, that make meaningful or notable uh, contributions to the shape of things to come right and so the hope here one light is that you know with the increased antitrust uh, litigation even though they don't have a wet work team you know merely holding a hammer merely standing in the room holding a hammer is enough to get people to say you know what Maybe maybe we shouldn't pay $100 billion uh, for this uh, firm uh, because it will definitely give us a monopoly or definitely give us an anti-competitive advantage that will be challenged by the FTC, right? And the FTC is on the cusp of, hopefully, God willing, blocking um, the Microsoft merger as well as the Facebook's uh, attempts, the Facebook's various attempts at acquiring firms that will help it uh, buttress its um, Second Life reboot. And I think that you know, going forward, one thing to anticipate, as is in line with Biggs, you know, own anticipation is that the monopoly and the anti-monopoly uh, monopoly front is going to get a bit stronger. You know, even if it may not fundamentally restructure the political economy of this country the way that some of the adherents would like. Uh, you know, we've talked a bit about Linicon's theories on structural separation. Uh, we've talked about. Um, uh, We've talked about theories uh, from Zephyr Teachout about what we can do to, you know, to restructure industries and to end exploitative labor practices, uh, to end some of the concentration uh, on each degree, uh, each uh, node of the supply chain. Um, you know, a lot, some of these things may come to pass. A lot of them, like structural separation, will not, um, and others that are not obviously related to antitrust, but still would work in finance, for example, like Saltio Morova's ideas. Even if they all do, are not adopted in the envisioned form, the march towards a desire to rein in the concentration across sectors and industries will yield genuine you know, positive benefits that also allow openings for us to decouple and undermine the logic 
you know, of the, of today's system, which, you know, it's not stable so much as, you know, um, as fluid. I don't know. Like <laughs> the logic of today's system is volatile and disruptive, but it, it, it's coupled with a few core institutions and structures and practices that if you can chip away with some of these antitrust reforms, you can then open the ground and open the door for much larger attacks on the ability of firms to carry out, you know, criminal and uh, anti-competitive behavior un, you know, undeterred. Yeah, and a, a really big one uh, that was just announced by the FTC a few days ago uh, was is a is a new proposed rule um, prohibiting non-compete clauses. Right, prohibiting firms from imposing non-compete clauses on their workers, uh, which is massive, right? Like, you know, uh, the the tech sector didn't originate the non-compete clause, but they have really uh, put pedal to the metal in terms of like exploiting that yeah. the non-compete clause, right? Yeah, like, it was like two years ago that we found out that they were um, doing wage fixing, right? Or three years ago? Yeah, they were doing industry-wide wage fixing. Exactly. Pure, pure and simple collusion um, yeah. via these non-compete clauses uh, that you know, restrict workers from freely switching jobs um, and are used, as you said, to lower wages and undermine fair competition uh, in, the, in the marketplace, right? Uh, and, and you know, on top of that is also the, the kind of the, the sister to the non-compete clause is the non-disclosure agreement as well, which, you know, the tech sector has very widely used and abused for, for every, everything because, you know, for them, it's all IP. And so everything is proprietary, uh, inf you know, information uh, or intellectual property. And so this kind of dual use of non-compete, uh, clauses and non-disclosure agreements, um, allow this like industry-wide collusion to happen um, where workers have no ability to negotiate because they don't have any ability to uh, actually make good on a threat to leave, you know? And, uh, uh, and I just want to quote real quick a, a stat that was really mind-blowing to me from the FTC's press release on this new proposed rule um, uh, is that, quote, by stopping this practice, the agency estimates that the new proposed rule could increase wages by nearly $300 billion per year and expand career opportunities for about 30 million Americans. Let me re-emphasize that so you know I said what I meant. Could increase wages by just simply by eliminating... Uh, non-compete clauses, wages in the United States could increase by nearly 300 billion with a B dollars per year and expand career opportunities for about 30 million Americans or nearly 10% of, of the total population, well over 10% of the, uh, the, the working uh, population of the U.S. That's fucking massive, um, and the right way. Because FTC wasn't like, 
we need to put uh, stark limitations and accountability measures in place for the use of non-compete clauses. They're like, fuck no, we need to abolish this, uh, prohibit it. You can't do that shit anymore. That's that's the way to do it. Not this like, you know, regulatory wonk uh, approach, you know, the fucking Cass Sunsteins and uh, Ezra Kleins and, you know, David Axelrod motherfuckers, you know, these Obama era motherfuckers who are like, you know, we need to have like uh, a, a 30 point uh, plan, each of which has 50 sub points um, for how to uh, uh, implement a regulatory uh, accountability measure. You know, blah, 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 blah. No, just get rid of it. Uh, uh, prohibit it completely. And that's extremely simple because now it's a, uh, a really easy enforcement. Are you using non-compete clauses? Uh, if no, you're good. If yes, you're not good, right? Like that's a, that's as easy. That, like that's as simple as it gets. And that alone, in addition to the the stark increase um, to wages, worker power, uh, uh, life chances, and opportunities for people, um, in in addition to all of that, that would have. Uh, immediate like structural impacts on the uh, the nature of the not the tech sector yes but a lot of other sectors when I tweeted this uh, this story out somebody reached out to me and was talking about how their their wife is a social worker and she's been forced to sign non-compete clauses for her job <sighs> what huh <laughs> yeah, you know? no, it's like it's all it's like really fucking ridiculous out there right now. Genuinely insane. I will say, during my uh, the year and a half, two years I spent trying to find a real like a job, I encountered fucking non competes so often for the most mundane jobs, like delivery driver at Jimmy John's. They make you sign an NDA. That's so like, fucking silly. You can, or not an NDA, but a non-compete. Like, you, can, what am I, you know, it's like the Hannibal Burris joke that he was talking about, uh, you know, when you're, when you're a citizen or when you're, I'm not a citizen, I'm sorry, when you're a senator and you're running for president, you just stop doing your job. It's like, like Jimmy John's thinks that I'm going to do that shit. Do you think I'm just going to like bounce from sandwich place from sandwich place? Exactly. You are going to do that. And that's why we have to make you sign this, Jeremy. Well, it, really what it is, is a lot of those places don't want you having multiple jobs. They want to be like, they want you to be, have allegiance, like swear an allegiance to one place. So you're not like, you know, making a choice because generally like quote unquote low skill workers, which we could throw that fucking ideal like out the window because there's no such thing as a low skill worker. I would love to see Ezra Klein manage a rush at a McDonald's, a cook at a 2 a.m. Waffle House. Like I want to see these motherfuckers do shit like that. I want to see Matt you know? Iglesias catch a motherfucking chair at a Waffle House. I want to see it happen. <laughs> yeah. Be the change you want to see in the world. <laughs> That would be ironic. Matt Iglesias uh, proving proving to you that he could work a shift at, at a Waffle House and then pisses the wrong person off and catches some hands and realizes that he's not equipped for Waffle House life. We at the Waffle House! Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm eating all-star breakfast with an all-star bitch getting all-star money still eating eggs and grits. We at the Waffle House! Yeah, yeah, yeah. We at the Waffle House! Bringing up
up the FTC and the increase in antitrust uh, and non and and yeah, antitrust enforcement, but also enforcement uh, and oversight of um, anti competition in the marketplace. I think that's a very interesting uh, and very hopeful dynamic that uh, I think uh, you know that we we should see continuing to unfold uh, in 2023 alongside you know just general kind of downturns in the market where uh, you know generally when there's downturns in the market uh you see a lot of like defensive posturing and maneuvering happening um which you know, often leads to um consolidations where people who can weather the downturn you know people who have you know their scrooge mcduck vault full of uh rainy day capital um can you know go on buying sprees and and you mentioned you know last year you know, you mentioned uh, the 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 data Matt Stoller was talking about, where last year there was this down, you know, a kind of downturn in mergers and acquisitions, in part because there was this massive upturn in 2021, but also in 2020, right? This was led by the pandemic. I remember when we, I remember looking at Amazon's, uh, you know, end of year uh, report for shareholders you know, uh, for 2020 and, and digging into some of the data and seeing that Amazon had more merge, uh, you know, had engaged in more acquisitions activity, uh, in terms of both, you know, volume, you know, data dollar amounts, but also numbers in terms of like numbers of acquisitions had engaged in more activity in 2020 than I think the previous like three or four years combined. Hell yeah. Uh, was that cause 2020 was a, uh, a, a gold, a, a boom town, the gold rush, you know, hell no. It was because it was a fucking terrible time for everybody, mm-hmm. um, except for Amazon, which meant, uh, things buy were cheap. A discount. Yeah. It's like, you know, they were all of a sudden, it was like buy one, get one free, you know, for, for, <laughs> for acquisitions. And so they were going on a shopping spree and, uh, this is, a, and, and that led directly to, you know, like mass consolidation, elimination of competition, uh, empowerment of the company, um, you know, its own abilities and capabilities and its own, you know, human capital, technological capital, all of that. And Amazon was not, you know, alone in that, uh, you know, other, other big tech companies were also doing the same. Um, and we see the same exact thing happen in finance all the time. What do you think happened when, the 2008 crash, you know, the mortgage uh, uh, bubble burst and that that crash happened and, and uh, house prices went, you know, just plummeted. You think those houses just sat around or do you think that, uh, you know, big fucking real estate investment trusts like Blackstone uh, went around and bought up houses at a discount, you know, just getting Baker's dozens of McMansions uh, that were selling for pennies on the dollar and then turning around uh, and secured, you know, fast forward 10 years later, they've securitized all of that through massive portfolios of single family homes, you know, uh, single family rental homes. That's a new asset class. Uh, you know, fast forward a little bit later and you see, you know, the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust uh, is getting a, uh, a, a fucking gigantic 
like multi-billion dollar, a $4 billion cash infusion from the University of California system, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so this is what happens, you know, that the, the, the Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust is a $68 billion dollar uh, uh, investment vehicle, which is not out there on the market. Doesn't the sh- the shares don't trade publicly? That's a private uh, uh, investment. That's for the boys. Yeah, it's for the boys. That's right. That's like <laughs> a that's private, right? And so, like, I can't. None of us can buy shares in it. But like, you know, you see, investments can uh, invest four billion dollars in uh, in 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 this. Uh, Blackstone Real Estate Investment Trust, right? And like, so all that's to say is that with this downturn in the tech market, with a, a, a stark turn towards uh, like debt financed, uh, you know, debt focused deals, you know, I'm just going to quote a little bit from the Financial Times had a really good article um, titled Silicon Valley Startups Race for Debt Deals and Funding Crunch. You know, they talk about this exactly where venture capital in terms of just like the more traditional, uh, you know, and, you know, big infusions of, of, of free money from VC, oftentimes like, you know, hands free money too, or hands off money, I should say, where it's like the idea is here's a bunch of money and you need to go spend it, go burn it. So you can hyper grow, uh, at scale or whatever. A lot of that's drying up and in place you have comp, I'll, I'll quote here from the, uh, FT, Quote, company founders have take, have entered into debt focused deals such as bridge loans, structured equity, convertible notes, participating bonds, and generous liquidation preferences. These moves are designed to avoid a dreaded down round, uh, except, which means accepting funding at a far lower valuation than a company had previously secured. Everyone is taking corrective action, said one investor based on Sand Hill Road, the Californian thoroughfare that is home to many of Silicon Valley's top venture capital groups, from Sequoia Capital to Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, I want to quote again from this uh, anonymous Sand Hill Road investor who, who got the last word uh, in this article, where they, they this investment manager told the FT, quote, we are telling our portfolio companies you shouldn't get overly anchored on a valuation you had a couple of years ago when the market was abnormally inflated. It is best to take your medicine now. Right. And so here you have a investment manager from Sand Hill Road, you know, the, the mecca of venture capital in Silicon Valley. One, admitting what everybody knows is that these valuations were abnormally and drastically inflated. And two, telling, you know, telling these companies, Hey, it's a down, you know, it's a downturn in the market. And so you need to take your medicine. What does that look like? That looks like entering into, uh, not, not free money. Uh, but debt deals. That means more structured equity, uh, more structured investments. Um, and, you know, what, the, ultimately what that means is, you know, the, who, who, who loses out in this downturn? You know, the, I, I don't think it's going to be the venture capitalists, right? Because they, they might lose out in terms of they have to mark some of their investments down, uh, which means they, you know, they, they've lost out in, in terms of like potential gain. Uh, and they don't want to do that, right? They don't, venture investors want growth. They want that positive momentum. They don't want a discount. 
And so, but they have other tricks up their sleeve to avoid, uh, avoid those discounts. You know, startup founders don't want the discounts, uh, you know, in terms of a down round evaluation. Venture capital doesn't want that either. But so what that means though is that venture capital has a lot of other deals up their sleeve or a lot of other tricks up their sleeve where, you know, I think we will still see VC investment this year, even though it's a down market, but it's not going to look like the zero interest rate free money. It's going to look more like structured investments that are based more on debt, that are based more on uh, having a lot of conditions in place that ensure venture capitalists don't lose. Uh, you know, this is this is something really crucial with venture capitalists, right, is that they are oftentimes talked about as these big risk takers uh, in, in the economy, right? These are, these are the necessary risk takers who, you know, invest their hard-earned capital to ensure that innovation happens, right? That, that uh, uh, you know, that we, we, and thus we should reward these risk takers, um, because they are the real makers here, you know. Uh, but in reality, venture capital uh, spends other people's money in, in large part, right? Like the partners at a firm, you know, are, are spending the money of people investing in the firm, right? This is the difference between limited partners and general partners. And, and so they want to keep growing their uh, their firm, which means they want to keep growing the amount of money people give them to invest, which means they need to find ways to ensure that they never, they never mark down on a discount, right? At the end of the day, you know, VC, uh, venture capitalists are, are going to do everything that they can to ensure that they walk away with the, the prime, uh, position in any kind of deal. They're going to ensure that they walk away with uh, their management fees, um, with some returns for their, you know, for people investing in their firm. And this looks a lot like pulling out tricks like what's called structure. I want to read a little bit from uh, Matt Levine's excellent money stuff column in, in Bloomberg, where he um, had a, a his, you know, a, a, a very good column last week explaining in part what structure looks like in tech, in, uh, in, in investment and venture capital and particularly in this kind of private tech investing world that we are talking about here. So he says, quote, one solution to the problem of down rounds is, is what is called in venture capital and tech circles, quote unquote, structure. Structure in this sense is generally a pejorative term. If you go on Twitter and search for structure, you will find venture capital thought leaders sternly warning founders to avoid structure, to accept a flat or even a down round instead of incurring the dreaded structure. What a structure means is that if a startup needs to raise money and its valuation has gone down, it will raise money at the same or higher headline valuation as its previous rounds, but it will promise investors some goodies to get them to invest. Frequently, the goodies, the structure, 
come in the form of a liquidation preference, a promise to give the new investors their money back, plus some guaranteed minimum profit before the early investors get anything. So say you've previously raised a Series C round by selling common stock at a $250 million valuation. Now you might do a Series D where you sell preferred stock at a $250 million valuation, but at a 2x liquidation preference. What this means is that one, if the company ends up being sold for a billion dollars, the Series C common and Series D preferred investors will both get back $4 for every $1 they put in because the stock is up 300% from where they bought it at a $250 million valuation. If the uh, Two, if the company ends up going to zero, the Series C and Series D investors will both get zero. Three, if the company ends up being sold for $300 million, the Series D investors will get back $2 for every $1 they put in, even though the stock is only up 20% from where they bought it because of that 2x liquidation preference. Right? And he goes on to explain that essentially what this means is that we should expect to see with these down rounds a lot more VC uh, firms investing with structure, right? Which means that they're going to be giving money, but they're going to be give, but they're going to be investing that money with a lot of conditions, things like liquidation preferences that ensure they cash out first, no matter what happens they cash out first uh, and they get not only their money back, but they get a guaranteed minimum profit. And everybody else who invested in earlier rounds when the market was up and people were just throwing free money around, well, they might lose their hat, right? They, or they, you know, they might have to take a, 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 a haircut, but not these later investments. I think this is really important to, to understand the kind of mechanics of venture capital here and how uh, it is the mechanics of venture capital that drives in a large part what happens in the technology sector in terms of investment and in terms of innovation, right? And in financial storms like this, in terms of what companies survive and under what conditions uh, they survive. I suspect that we will see venture capitalists, especially like later stage investment rounds, uh, really taking an even stronger reign uh, and imposing even stricter conditions on uh, on startups, which just means, and, 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 you know, I think that, you know, VCs already have massive structural power, already have what uh, the political economist Francesca Koeman calls uh, imprinting power or the power to uh, imprint their logics on the, uh, the, the kind of entire technological value chain and hype cycle and all of that uh, and ensure that innovation follows the logics uh, is influenced by the imperatives of venture capital. I think we're going to see, uh, ironically, or perhaps paradoxically, uh, in a down market, the power of financial capital will rise, uh, even though it's a down market. That's the beautiful contradictions and paradoxes of a system designed in such a way where finance capital cannot lose no matter what happens. One of the concerns here 
that emerges is because venture capital has managed to create this like pretty expansive network and infrastructure for preserving its ability to generate new markets, self-deal, pursue speculative enterprises that generate returns and profits that then ensure more activity further down the line and that even and that this infrastructure exists even though there's been an ongoing downturn you know like what actions if any are on the horizon to attack the infrastructure right because i think we've seen we see with antitrust we see it this focus on some of the beneficiaries you know of this uh, splurge of cash on some of the firms and the industries which have taken advantage of the free money to grow to scales that are unsustainable and that probably, you know, shouldn't not only unsustainable, but also unjustifiable. But, you know, one thing I would like to see in 2023, and, but I'm not also not clear what the path is, at least given where things are at right now. Is one thing I'd like to see right now, but it's not clear what the path is, is, you know, how do we start pruning away that infrastructure that venture capitalists rely on to transmit the capital, right? I mean, part of it, of course, does require literally, uh, killing some of the companies and the industries that they're e- easily able to access. And as you know, Mark Levine talks about, also part of the work is going to be done by just poor macroeconomic conditions. A part of it is also going to be done by you know, the fact that some, some of the incentives inherent to venture capital are not not only are macroeconomic conditions going to make it harder for free money to come around, but they also disincentivize these people from you know get, being able to get away with the usual sort of uh, self-dealing hair, uh, self-dealing and, you know, f- uh, loss leading strategies that they might promote. But we're also going to have to just like, you know, attack and pr- attack the sources of capital and protect other institutions that might t- turn their money over to venture capitalists, endowments, foundations, pension funds, you know, these sorts of people and others hand often hand their money over to private capital allocators so that they can generate excessive returns because they need them if they're providing you know uh pension payments um if they're helping a university with him with its ambition of being a venture capital uh, fund with um a side business of providing an education to a few thousand people every year or you know with ensuring that a charitable foundation continues to grow so it can be charitable you know how do we create the infrastructure financial infrastructure policy infrastructure uh funding infrastructure to ensure one, you know, that venture capital in these down cycles can be kept down instead of continuing to just like go back to the ridiculous period of growth that it saw from 2008 to 2021. But also then how do we displace it permanently? You know, how do we make it, how do we disincentivize people flowing money into these, um, these large hordes of capital that generate these large returns because they're operating off this lottery ticket model where you just throw money at anything that might suck it up at a certain size and hope that you can reach the scale necessary to earn your money back. Looking at research, uh, that's been going on, uh, analyzing how funding goes on in China and Europe. And, you know, part of that solution is like, you know, an anathema discussion here, but we will have to figure out a, a way to, and maybe there, maybe this is something that will happen more in 2023, but talking more about like alternative funding for the tech sector and alternative funding for uh, development of, you know, tech products and alternative ownership schemes. Because, you know, it's, it's just, if you just step back, it's not a good idea. It's, it's not really a, a sustainable or healthy or efficient system that, we do have central planning, but the way that it works is we have uh, these uh, these real estate investment trusts 
we have these capital allocators in, in really tightly knit social networks, uh, and and we have them uh, fighting for uh, spigots of of public funds that they can use and mix in with their private funds, but mainly other people's money to own, uh, to develop, to design, and to proliferate uh, the digital world and their image, uh, which is you know more often than not an antisocial one and, and one that goes against like most of the interest that we have of an internet being free fast you know universal of course but also of experimental so that you you can you can try to solve social problems without having to make a fucking app you know i mean like it just i, do, I think one consequence and one thing i truly hate about venture capital and that, and that i think we also understate is that you know it's had its influence is hegemonic enough where that most times when a problem is presented to people the immediate idea is we need to create a startup so that we can cre- and create an app, right, um, and and use that to solve the issue. But to do that already preclu- precludes and and requires all sorts of conceits and limitations because you know to make an app you then have to make something that of course will get a certain amount of users, which means you have to figure out a way to generate the data so that you can figure out a way to sell that data, which means you can figure out a way to generate advertiser revenue, which also means that you're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, get access to servers, which means you're also then just going to be paying rent to certain landlords on the internet, right? And all of these things constrain almost immediately what you think of as a problem, what you think of as a solution, and what you're even willing to entertain because you still need to figure out a way to make the app to start up viable to attract capital. Until we really root out these parasites, which, you know, maybe the recession will be a good way to provide cover for that. Uh, we're gonna, that they remain one of the largest enemies that we have in terms of rethinking and re-envisioning how tech gets developed in this world. You know, as long as, as long as they're dominant and providing a large chunk of, you know, the funding for these startups in the digital economy, we're not, uh, nothing else is going to be made except more social control, more surveillance, more ad tech, more speculative Ponzi schemes to lure in capital from people who are already suffering as is in other walks of life. I think that's a nice segue as well to lead towards like, what do we think is the big tech trend uh, to look out for for 2023, right? If 2022 was the year of Web3 uh, and, and, you know, the, the writing was on the wall, you know, and, 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 you know, the previous year in 2021. But I think we, I think we did a pretty good job of calling that by, you know, very early on paying a lot of attention to, uh, and do, and devoting a lot of episodes to talking about Web3 long before, uh, really broke into the public consciousness, uh, in the, in the way that it did, um, last year and, and the year before. But, uh, this question of what do you think is the what do we think is the new is going to be the tech trend that kind of dominates 2023 is intimately linked up to this you know the state of the market right and the kind of the directions of of cap of VC of venture capital of investment um, because it's also the case that uh, uh, venture capitalists are not some like uniquely adept. 
uh, you know, market whispers, uh, you know, or trend whispers, uh, or anything like that. Like, you know, in large part, they are more like lemmings, right? They follow the crowd. Um, they, you know, they, they say that they, you know, they rely on their intuition, uh, to, to pick good investments. But in large part, that looks like, uh, relying on, you know, uh, copying other people's homework, right? Seeing what are other people doing? Oh, y'all are jumping off a bridge. Well, that's cause there, that, that's cause there must be good investments at the bottom of, of the ravine, right? So I'm gonna jump off the bridge with you. Um, oh, y'all are investing in, uh, people wearing gray, you know, college dropouts wearing gray hoodies. Um, that must be because, uh, uh, you know, that they, they're magic, uh, you know, magnets for profit. So I'm going to invest in the same people, right? It's like, you know, oh, y'all keep investing in, in the same, uh, uh, white men, you know, uh, uh, well, that just, but that must not be like, you know, my like structural biases. Uh, but like, you know, instead, uh, you know, my ability to read the tea leaves of who, who, who makes money. I don't know. Like, you know, all that has to say is that like VC follow, VCs follow the herd. They get high on their own supply, right? They are as much hype makers and generators. Like that's a huge part of their job is creating hype, creating markets for the things they've invested in um, as a way to create short burst of uh, excitement in a thing. So as to like drastically raise the, the speculative valuation of that thing just in time for them to cra uh, cash out, right? Like, you know, it, none of this happens on a, on a long time horizon, which is why we are also often stuck with technologies, uh, that are, that are shitty and are made worse and worse every single year, um, that break, uh, more and more with every passing year. We'll, we'll talk more about this in the, uh, premium episode that they, they in fact do not make things the way they used to. Uh, and I think a lot of that is the, the chasing of short-term returns, uh, that VC is, um, you know, really excels at, at, at uh, generating the hype and the speculation and the excitement for these like, you know, short, brilliant flashes of market spasms, uh, cashing out. And then, you know, uh, before, before the, the, you know, the balloon, uh, deflates the bubble burst. But at any rate, a lot of, you know, they, they also buy into their own hype or they buy into the hype of other, um, hype men, uh, as well. They're not immune to it. And so they fall there, you know, they very often follow the crowd. Nobody wants to feel left out, you know, as much as they talk about, you know, you need to invest in, you know, every investment should have the potential to make, you know, 10 X your entire fun. You know, that's one of, uh, Peter Till's kind of iron laws of venture capital. Uh, and so they, they really, you know, hype themselves up as the, this ability to, you know, find the, find the companies no one else knows about, find the unicorns that no one else is investing in, get in early. In reality, uh, they follow the crowd. They invest. If, if one company became a unicorn, they're going to invest in, uh, you know, the next, uh, hundred copycats of that company and hope that it also becomes a unicorn. So this is why we get these like big ecosystems of like, it was the gig economy. Then it was web three, right? 
What do you think, Ed? I have my own ideas. I think we're probably aligned. What do you think is the, you know, with Web3 clearly, uh, you know, in, in the pits now, with the gig economy kind of long ago, you know, that, I mean, the gig economy is in large part being subjected to these like crashing valuations, these plummeting stock valuations uh, and, and down rounds. And so what do you, there, so with VC kind of a, a jumping ship, you know, like the rats they are, uh, what do you think the next thing they're going to leap onto is? I mean, that's a good question. I think that, you know, with the gig economy, because no, a key dynamic here is that the companies have, are pursuing uh, normalization strategies where they're doing deals with major cities to try to integrate them or trying to pursue deals with major cities to integrate them into um, not just the legal regime for taxis, but um, to try to integrate taxis onto the app, for example, so that it's a go-to source for people who are also not interested in using an Uber or Lyft, right? So there may be spurges here and there of interest in the gig economy and also in startups that use um, software that some of these companies might have to try to partner with public transit. Um, but I don't know. I think I do think venture capitalists are going to continue to be interested in Web3 um, because, uh, because Meta has committed to spending billions of dollars there. And so they're still going to be trying to build a foundation for uh, for the for market to exist within ten years, because that's going to be their next big shift until they abandon it. If they abandon it, right? If they abandon it, then all bets are off. But for now, it does not appear that they're abandoning it, and that they're actually doubling down. Um, we can also expect more uh, investment in artificial intelligence. The New York Times ran a story talking about a recent wave of AI startups that are getting lofty valuations such as open AI, which is kind of funny because I could have sworn the week before Sam Altman said that open AI, you know, open AI is not making money at all is <laughs> losing, burning prodigious amounts of money. But when has, that ever stopped a venture capitalist from saying that you're actually worth even more money than you could imagine. Um, I think so. We're going to see more interest in artificial intelligence startups. One, because, you know, the AI industry is in of itself built on this kind of tacit agreement to just lie about its capabilities to convince people to use it, to convince investors to back money in it to it so that they can monetize the eschaton and make the sort of devices they want to see in the world exist, even though they, it's not even clear they're possible. So there will be, there's still going to be a big push for that because there is still a real desire one on the one hand from capitalists to uh, pursue harebrained schemes to replace workers, to outsource management, to outsource call centers, so on and so forth uh, to cut costs whenever possible, but also because, I think there's a real belief that if you just keep lying about the AI industry and its capabilities, or maybe you believe them, whatever, if you keep insisting on this narrative and the story, it will become more lucrative and valuable in the future. And also in environmental stuff, right? We've talked a bit about how nature as an asset has continued to pick up steam um, and is being pushed by odious corners of the society. And, and venture capitalists, you know, 
made various forays into nature's asset through the web three and crypto connected projects that attempted to create credit carbon credit markets. We talked with Aviasha Sharpio about this um, a few weeks ago, where he's talking about Brazil's carbon credit markets and crypto backed crypto backed credit markets that allowed you to do emissions at a certain level, so on and so forth. Um, you know, these things are tend to be fraudulent or covers for uh, business as usual. And I don't think there's no reason to think they wouldn't go any, you know, they suddenly disappear. You'll see environmental tech, EVs, batteries, um, you know, startups claiming to, you know, figure out ways to make autonomous vehicles, so on and so forth, right? I think like these sort of core things, environment, AI, and continued interest in Web3 because as so long as Meta, is pushing it forward, attempts to integrate big data or still use big data to, you know, make a pharma, uh, medicine, so on and so forth, uh, more efficient, right? The efficiency, the efficiency drive is still going to be present even if, um, even if these things were just proven when they were first introduced, even if Amazon's own big data, a pharma outfit, you know, Amazon Care um, collapsed. Even if every single time these people get disproved on their own merits by their own by their own records, they will still pour money at it. Because for a lot of these industries, again, the key thing here is you just keep lying until some semblance of the truth um, resembles the vision that you had, the fever dream that you had a decade, two decades ago. It doesn't really matter if it's possible to use you know, big data and, and a network of sensors to create some optimized health profile that might help you be a better consumer and worker and athlete and whatever. Um, what matters is that you're selling the vision um, and creating the market and generating interest and getting returns and getting out, right? Um, because that is the name of the game. You get in and out. A hundred percent agree, and I that I have the same vibe. Name, you know, particularly that uh, generative AI. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, is it? That's 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 going to be the next thing. I going to be I, fighting I, a war when GPT four comes out. Oh God! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! You're, you're so, drafted. It's <laughs> we're drafted into the 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 AI, the AI war. battles. Yeah. It's not, contrary to the drill tweet, it's not that when you die, your skeleton, you know, you're drafted into the skeleton wars. It's when you die, your brain is drafted into the AI wars. Uh, (laughs) Wasn't it Mel Hogan was talking about on the episode that we had them on recently about uh, using DNA and RNA to store information? Maybe maybe that's the future of quantum computing. They're just going to start harvesting human beings. <laughs> you talk about quantum computing. Is <laughs> I feel like that, I feel like that meme with like a cigarette being like quantum computing. I haven't heard that name in a long time. <laughs> you know, like like that's uh, that that's 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 one of those emerging technologies that's been emerging for the last like fifty years, and is always like. You know, yeah, like self-driving cars. Yeah, and quantum computing is always a bit on a bit further time horizon. It's not like three years away; it's like ten years away. Let me ask you guys something. I really haven't like spent a lot of time thinking about this, but I feel like maybe it explains why people are so quick to like hop aboard, simping for people like Elon Musk and their ilk. I mean, it's because so many people, like especially people my age, were promised like this future. 
that we haven't yet been delivered. So anytime we have someone that comes along and tells you that like, you know, we'll have AI computers writing your like your paper, your, your college papers for you or your cars will drive you places and you won't have to worry about driving. And people are willing to like accept that because they want it. They want that reality so bad. Do you think that plays a big part in that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think so. You bringing that up reminds me of the excellent uh, essay by David Graeber in The Baffler from years and years ago called Of Flying Cars and the Declining Rate of Profit. That essay is from 2012. Uh, it's 11 years old now, um, but it's, it's a really fucking good analysis of exactly what you're just talking about here. And it's, an anal- it's, it's a good analysis of everything we've been talking about in terms of like, you know, technology and capitalism are not like two, like two, two systems that are simultaneously happening at the same time, right? Like they are the, the tail wagging the dog, you know, capitalism drives the development of technology. uh, And then, you know, technologies themselves or, or, or promises of, of the, of the power and profit that technologies can bring, um, you know, drive the capital investment. Right. And so like, you know, you've got a kind of real uh, almost dialectical relationship, one might say between, uh, these two, like, you know, socio-technical systems of tech, you know, capitalism on one hand, technology on the other. And they, and they don't, ex- you know, in, in the world we live in, uh, they don't exi- exist outside of each other, right? Like we don't get technologies, um, f- you know, for the vast majority, most part, unless they are at the behest of or because they serve the needs and imperatives and interest of capitalism, right? And capitalism in our modern era is extremely driven uh, by the continual uh, investment of technologies. I mean, you know, capitalism in general, right? This is what Marx talked about, where the the incessant need to constantly revolutionize the means of production, right? Like, you know, the bourgeois need to do disruption, uh, you know, that, uh, uh, Marx identified in the Communist Manifesto, um, and expanded on in Capital, right? And so this is also not a new feature that technology, the forces of production, um, uh, sit firmly in the middle of capital and capitalism as a, as a system, right? And so, uh, you know, and at the same time, you know, uh, Marx wrote, you know, in, in capital that entire histories could be written of the, you know, innovations, um, created for the simple fact of, uh, breaking worker power, right? Like, you know, that, that in other words, the subjugation of the working class is itself a powerful motivation for invention. You know, the mother of invention, innovation is the mother of necessity or whatever it is, you know. Well, the necessity here is more often than not um, terms set by what capital deems to be necessary, right? To meet their own, their own goals and their own endpoints, their own benefit. That is a, a very often the necessity that is driving uh, invention and innovation. And so I think we see this a lot. I, you know, we talked about it in our, in the premium episode about web three, where I think web three is this real, had, it turned out to be a fantastic case study of the way in which like 
of you know capital tried really hard to do production without doing production, right? To like completely sever its connection to the real economy and thus the limitations and constrictions of the real economy on its ability to do uh, hyper growth, right? Like, man, if you can produce capital without having it, without it being tied to anything in the, in the real material world, uh, that's great. Because now, now it's just you know it's just pure imagination, uh, and and imagination is limitless. Um, and I think you know for me, thinking about the rise and the the kind of boom of generative AI, where I, I will be curious to see Ed if you're right that you know VC, uh, if anything, just out of a sense of like sunk cost or momentum, continue to uh, try to prop up and invest. Web three or the gig economy in any serious way, right? And you yeah, know, I hope and I'm wrong. I, I mean, I hope you are too, but I think you raise a good point that they very well could, right? That they might not be ready to abandon those those ships because those, you know, the gig economy, Web three, and now generative AI, you know, the kind of GPT, uh, uh, you know, three and four, uh, Chat GPT, Dolly two, you know, those, uh, you know, these kinds of things that Open AI is really on the forefront of creating, if not technologically then in terms of market and finance, um, they are. Because I don't think OpenAI is actually at the technological vanguard, the cutting edge, the bleeding edge of these technologies. We know that's not the case when it comes to large language models, uh, but they are extremely adept at selling these technologies, at creating consumer-facing technologies, which then create hype, create... Uh, uh, excitement, um, generate investments and deals such as, you know, their massive deals with Microsoft, uh, you know, their, their new deal, uh, for, um, you know, they're in the, uh, uh, the New York Times reports that OpenAI is in talks to complete a deal that would value it at around $29 billion, which is more than twice its valuation in 2021. Uh, and that deal could potentially come um, through investments by VC firms like uh, Founders Fund, you know, Peter Till, of course, right there in the middle of things, uh, as well as Thrive Capital. Um, and so, you know, OpenAI has been really adept at, at, at the very least, kind of creating its, its position as the leader of, if not the technological um, development, you know, uh, then very much so at the market the marketing of the technology, the the application of the technology in ways that are uh, consumer facing, and that means I think that 2023 is going to bring, uh, as it, as we have already begun to see, uh, a, a lot of copycats of people either building directly off of these uh, you know APIs like GPT three or other uh, LLMs um, and machine vision. Uh, systems or creating their own. Uh, but, you know, either way, I think, you know, we already see that happening with the, uh, the AI avatars created by, uh, that, uh, what's the name of that fucking, uh, picture app, Linza, right? Like that was a massive, like, like that took off there for like a couple weeks on Twitter, whereas like everything was about the Linza magic AI avatars, um, which Olivia Snow, 
you know, a, a researcher uh, on uh, on this stuff had a really good article in Wired magazine talking about you know the, a lot of the problems with uh, the you know these magic AI avatar systems um, and the extremely problematic um, things that they create. Right? I'll just read the uh, the headline for uh, Olivia Snow's Wired op-ed where it says magic avatar app Linza generated nudes from my childhood photos. Uh, the dreamy picture editing AI is a nightmare waiting to happen. So, you know, we're already seeing some really uh, nightmarish uh, uh, things happening from these generative AI systems in large part because they are uh, being rolled out without any accountability um, and with very little concern for their effects. I saw something on Twitter that some startup guys were using, uh, I think it was chat GPT um, for like mental health counseling, you know, as uh, for a mental mm, health counseling again. app without telling people that it was a, uh, that it wasn't a real person that they were talking to. Right. And we also know that like, there's also all kinds of examples where, uh, you know, if you ask like chat GPT, should I, you know, should I kill myself or should I harm myself? Uh, it'll give you a really, uh, uh, the appearance of a well-reasoned argument as to why you should in fact do that. Right. So, <laughs> you know, even with these quote unquote safeguards installed on these apps, like, you know, it's all happening so fast and with really very little accountability, very little concern, very little expertise uh, for the, uh, the, the real kind of social problems, not to mention, you know, other issues here. I think drawing a kind of line here in terms of like, you know, the kind of capitalism and technology development, uh, that's happening, right? If, if the gig economy was of, uh, capital trying to draw money out of the, uh, the, the privatization and the domination of, um, what I've termed in my previous work, sovereignty, right? Pre, you know, sovereignty over public services, sovereignty over public spaces, uh, you know, uh, as, as well as, uh, sovereignty over the labor market, right? Like, so, if, you know, gig economy was a way to try to draw capital out of, out of the existing economy, uh, the real economy of goods and services. Um, then, you know, Web3 was a way of trying to do that out of the purely fictitious realm. Uh, and I think, you know, generative AI is trying to do that in a kind of cognitive capitalism way, right? Uh, a way of like, you know, uh, let's actually, instead of using AI to manage workers or instead of using AI to uh, create assets, uh, you know, or whatever, like let's use AI to replace people, uh, and create intellectual property, which can then be licensed, uh, monetized. It's, it's all these different one weird tricks that capital keeps trying to employ with different types of technologies, um, to, uh, accumulate an endless, uh, a loop, an endless cycle of more and more capital without actually having to do anything that is uh, socially useful uh, in, in the world. That's what I think is really a kind of dominating pattern uh, that we see in terms of uh, the, the kind of trends of technological investment uh, and development and hype uh, and marketing and all that is it's like, how can capital 
you know, hop onto some new form of technology uh, as a one weird trick for uh, a perpetual motion machine of profit making um, without actually having to engage in any of the uh, the hard work of uh, of doing something useful in the world. Well, you know, one 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 quick trick. First step, you get a Federal Reserve Bank or central bank that um, lets you print money. Um, and, uh, then you get other people's money in a pile, question mark, and then profit with a massive asterisk next to it. Don't ask what the asterisk is for. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 if I have one projection, like one major projection, uh, for, 2023 it's that uh tmk is going to be um begrudgingly devoting a lot uh, uh many more episodes talking about not only generative ai uh but open ai uh and the uh i'm sure multiplicity of uh of, of copycat startups uh, uh and investment uh vc funds uh and activities um, that will follow uh, and will simultaneously follow and lead that I think that's the 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 one projection I have is that 2023 and I hope I'm wrong but I think 2023 is shaping up to being the year uh, of generative AI mm. Potemkin AI really <laughs> well, uh, yes yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and that I think that's that's an irony here, and we'll talk about that more in the premium episode. But I think there is an irony here as well that even as these technologies develop, even as they advance, even even as their their claims do or their their capabilities rather do become remarkable uh, in terms of what you know uh, open AI systems can do, but at, at the same time, the claims of what they can do become even more incredible and incredulous, uh, which ironically leads to like the more advanced the technology gets, the more entrenched and necessary Potemkin AI uh, becomes, you know, and I think there's a, a very long and very good um, article in the latest issue of N plus one magazine, uh, which really laid out uh, in, in very, uh, very good detail exactly how, you know, this idea of Potemkin AI or Photomation, you know, something that like, you know, me, uh, Astra Taylor, people like Mary Gray, uh, in the book Ghostwork, uh, Mary Gray and Siddharth Siri in the book Ghostwork, you know, books, books and articles that came out at this point nearly eight years ago, uh, coining some of these terms and really giving early analysis of them. Um, I, I don't think I could have foreseen how uh, much you know, Potemkin AI, Photomation, ghost work would continue to be uh, not only central, but a growing and necessary part of systems that themselves continue to progress and advance. Um, why? Because the capabilities uh, will never be able to uh, meet the claims, right? Uh, in other words, the claims always outpace the capabilities of, of these technologies, and there always needs to be something there to fill that gap in between the ever-increasing capabilities and the exponentially increasing claims, uh, and more often than not, 
the gap there is uh, low-wage hidden human labor. Uh, that's always the real one quick trick, uh, the real solution that capital falls back on um, is human labor. So with that, I think I'll, I'll, I'll wrap up this episode. We can roll into the premium episode where we're going to talk more about some of these things, digging into some recent really good articles that I think exemplify things that we've been talking about around like Potemkin AI, around like the, 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 the fall of quality in consumer goods because, uh, you know, Technology is not made the way it used to be made in large part because uh, the dictates of capital um, continue to grow stronger. You know, as well, uh, some other uh, really uh, infuriating uh, things and in, on the horizon in the in the, the tech startup world around uh, geoengineering, you know, stuff like that. So <laughs> join us in the premium episode uh, where we're going to get into all of that stuff. Uh, you can find it and find us at patreon.com slash this machine kills for additional premium episodes every single week. Uh, very often doing deeper dives, double headers, two part episodes, um, that directly continue, uh, on the free episodes. So find us there for more analysis, more commentary, but also sometimes just some some good old fashioned free willing uh riffing and goofing uh on the on the <laughs> on the premium feed. So until next time, later. Adios.